You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. I am coming to you from Buenos Aires as usual. And my guest this week is Brian Earp. And this is Brian's second appearance on the podcast. So if you want to listen to his first appearance later, you can go and find the episode In Defense of the Foreskin, uh, where Brian and I are talking about the ethics of neonatal circumcision. Brian is an associate director at the Yale Hastings Program in Ethics and Health Policy and a research fellow at the Oxford Uhiro Center for Practical Ethics. And he is the co-author with Julian Savulescu um, of um, a book called Love is the Drug, The Chemical Future of Our Relationships. Or the, the US version is called Love Drugs, The Chemical Future of Relationships. Welcome, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. I, I want to just start by clarifying that I think that a lot of people just reading the title of your book think that this is going to be a conversation about um, thought experiments, about drugs that could occur, that we could develop in the future, which might influence, which might affect our, might be drugs that might stimulate or, or suppress love. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I'm very inarticulate today for some reason. Please, everyone, bear with me. Um, but. The book is not about that. It's about drugs that we are currently taking, which have effects on our um, romantic and sexual relationships, wanted or unwanted, and how we can understand better the effects those drugs have on our relationships. And if we wish, we can actually start to think about deliberately using those drugs to affect relationships rather than the effect on relationships simply being a side effect. Right. I think that maybe the subtitle would have been clumsier, but more accurate if it said the, the past, present, and future of uh, chemical future of relationships, because mm. uh, we, talk, we talk about the deliberate use of drugs as, as early as the 1970s to influence relationships, and that was when MDMA from ecstasy, uh, well, before it was used and known as ecstasy, uh, was employed as a, an adjunct to couples counseling among people who didn't have any particular mental illness that was being addressed, which is how the drug is now being reintroduced into medicine. That was the, that was the initial use before it uh, became known as um, a, a drug that was used in the party scene. So that's the past, and we're, we're referring to that and trying to bring the discussion around to whether the current uh, uses of these drugs could be expanded back out to 
interpersonal or relational uses. And then, as you say, we talk about a whole bunch of drugs that are used for other purposes today, like antidepressant medication, um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors is the one that we pay the most attention to. And then we talk about the potential future as well. But in a way, it's really the present and the past that we spend the most time focusing on in the book. And the future, we have a little bit of speculation, but we try not to be speculative. This isn't a science fiction book. It's really about what's going on right now. So I, I have so many thoughts about about the book, which are in a slightly disorganized form, but perhaps a good way to start would be to talk about um, ways in which we might use drugs to um, enhance love, and then ways in which we might use them to suppress love, and then to talk about what the possible um, ethical implications and um, potential objections to this are, to these practices. Sure, sounds like a good idea. So let's begin with the pro-love drugs. Okay, so pro-love drugs. You want to know about what the what the possibilities are, and then also what what some of the ethical questions are that are are raised by. Um, yes, maybe let's just start with the possibilities, the therapeutic possibilities. Sure. Um, so there are there are more direct and less direct ways of influencing uh, the subjective experience of love that one has for one's partner, and. Pretty quickly, we're going to have to get into a tangent about what the hell I mean by love. And uh, that's something maybe I'll, I'll put a pin in for now and just talk a little bit more about the, the drugs and the neurochemistry. And you might have an intuitive sense of how they could influence these higher level, uh, more abstract notions of love. So uh, in terms of direct interventions, there are a number of biological theories of love which don't reduce love to brain chemistry, but which suggests that love certainly has a biological dimension or aspect. And uh, one of these theories suggests that underlying our experiences of love across cultures are these brain systems that evolved to suit the reproductive needs of our ancestors. And so these are a, a lust or libido system, which is modulated by testosterone, among other uh, neurohormones. And the point of that is just to draw our attention to a range of potential mating partners which is important for obvious reasons for the, the persistence of our species. And then you have uh, the attraction system, which narrows down your attention to a smaller number of potential partners, maybe one in particular. And then attachment is uh, what is meant to underlie both the parent-child bond, and in particular, the maternal-infant bond is reinforced through the expression of oxytocin with things like breastfeeding. And it's also the bond that underlies the adult romantic partnership. Oxytocin plays a role in cementing that connection as well. And the point here is just that each of these underlying systems are regulated by neurochemicals that can be adjusted by direct intervention today. So oxytocin can be sprayed up into the brain through the nose using a nasal spray. It's been synthesized in, in a laboratory and can be administered artificially. Testosterone can obviously be adjusted in various ways. Uh, serotonin, which plays a role in the attraction system, is regularly modified with drugs we use already. And I mentioned earlier selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That's the common antidepressant medication that interacts with this system. And so the point is that the more that we're learning about the role of these neurochemicals and the way that they interact with each other to support or give rise to our subjective experiences of desire and attraction and attachment, 
the more we'll have the ability to to intervene in those systems directly if we if we want to. So those are those are ways of interacting directly in the brain to modulate these underlying brain systems. And uh, maybe because I've been talking so long, I'll, I'll pause there and see what else you want to know. But we can also talk about more indirect ways of influencing love and relationships. And that gets more into the world of psychedelics. Right. So I think it's important to stress, in case this isn't clear to anybody, that there's these are effects on um, your general brain chemistry. You you can use you can manipulate these to affect specific relationships be, if you're already in that relationship, but you can't. They can't be directed towards individuals. So I was thinking of this, for example, um, in regards to gay conversion therapy, which I think we'll come to later because it forms an interesting test case for the ethics of, of this kind of thing. Um, there is no gay conversion therapy because even if you could suppress people's sex, same-sex desires, you can't actually, you can't change the direction of their desires from same-sex to opposite sex. All you can do is dampen down the desires altogether. So you don't, the choice that you don't have, you have no influence over which person these feelings are directed towards. You can just dampen down those feelings in specific situations or ramp them up. Generally speaking, that's right, that you have these more global effects rather than targeted effects. But sometimes you can harness the situation to narrow the effect somewhat. So if, for example, we were talking about the use of MDMA or some psychedelic drugs like psilocybin in the context of a couple's counseling session, the effect of the drug is active for four or five hours. And during that time, you're having particular subjective experiences that uh, dispose you to be maybe more open-minded and more receptive to your partner's perspective. And it's really the content of what goes on in that experience that will have an effect on how that relationship plays out. And so if the effect of the drug wears off and you go out into the world, it will have been that special experience with your partner that is going to shape the connection between the two of you, and it won't necessarily have obvious carryover effects to other situations. So insofar as these drugs can be used in targeted ways, you're right that it's not about going in the brain and finding the specific representation of a person and somehow changing the chemical pathways that link up to that representation, but you can harness the situation to have relatively more targeted effects in some cases. Right. As I think I mentioned to you informally before when I was um, when my husband and I were breaking up, I tried to convince him to take ecstasy with me because I wanted to, I thought that it might help us to become closer. It's, it sounds like that was an unsuccessful attempt. It, right. I, it, yeah. The tried was the, was the tip off there. Okay. So, so it didn't happen, but, um, do you think that had it happened, you would, it would have drawn you closer together or maybe reinforced some insights about the need to, to end the relationship? P possibly. Um, so I think that you talk about ecstasy as being a drug that can give a person greater clarity um, mm -hmm. about their own feelings because it can remove in certain inhibitions and, and repressions and fears and make you able to confront things and see things more clearly. And that, of course, could lead some people to come to the conclusion that they need to have the courage to end the relationship and to leave. So in that sense, it doesn't. There's no guaranteed effect that it will intensify um, your love relationship. That's a that's an important point, and I think people, when they think of love drugs, they imagine something like a pill that has some love in it, and if you just swallow the pill, then 
love increases. And none of the drugs that we talk about work like that. They are going to have different effects on different people in different situations, depending on what's going on with them. So we have a long discussion of SSRIs, the antidepressant drug, and show how, depending on what's going on with the person or the couple, they could either be a relationship enhancing drug and that they could improve the quality of the love between a couple, or they could um, diminish the the quality of the connection between a couple or even potentially uh, reduce to the point of elimination some features of romantic relationships, including uh, through its depressive effect on the sex drive. So whether having a higher or a lower libido is good or bad for a relationship is not a general uh, uh, question. It's, it's something that can only be answered in the context of a particular relationship. Right. It depends on your sexual compatibility with your partner. So if you have a very high libido and your partner does not, then you might want to reduce your libido to be um, more compatible with them, to feel more content with your sex life as it is. Exactly. Or to try to, to raise to raise libido. So ADE is this drug that's been promoted as potentially a libido booster for women. There's not very good evidence that it's very effective. Uh, that's a whole other conversation we could have, but at least there are definitely attempts to try to boost libido for some people and uh, potentially reduce libido for others. There's always a problem there of, of suggesting that if you want to reduce someone's libido, it implies that it's it's bad or pathological to, to, to desire to have a lot of sex. And that, that should be emphasized that there's nothing in, inherently wrong with wanting a lot of sex. But there is a very common phenomenon that people in long-term relationships do find that they have very mismatched libidos. And that is a major source of conflict in, in many relationships. So it's not a trivial issue. Right. Um, actually, when I brought this up, when I was discussing the podcast, uh, someone wrote to me to say that his uh, wife, who has um, had serious gynecological problems, and because of the nature of her illness, she has almost no libido now, and he feels that if if there, he would like to take a drug to reduce libido, um, because he really loves and is devoted to his wife, and he doesn't want to um, feel so much sexual frustration within their relationship, but he also doesn't want to be, uh, he doesn't want to pressurize or nag her. Right. So um, he feels that that would be a good solution for them. There, there are a lot of traditions within religions and f schools of philosophy that uh, having a, a, a quiet sex drive is all things considered uh, helpful in some cases because it's a very, I mean, it's just like having a very strong hunger drive. If you're constantly looking around for food and you're never satiated, that can be an issue. So although there's nothing wrong per se with having a high sex drive, it's also important to remember that there are schools of thought suggesting that having a, a lower libido should, shouldn't be pathologized either. In fact, there are some ways in which that can uh, promote a person's well-being because it allows them to turn their attention to other things besides always thinking about sex. Yes. I was thinking um, all of the uh, all the time while I was reading your book, I was thinking about Ursula Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness. Have you read that? I haven't, no. Uh, it's one of my favorite novels, and it's a sci-fi novel set in this world called Gethin, where the inhabitants are very similar to humans, except that they are estrus-dependent hermaphrodites. Mm, interesting. And they spend most of the month in a state called Sommer, where, which is where they have uh, no sexual erotic feelings, and they are also completely, they are also sexless. Right. And then for five days a month, they go into Kemmer, which is this in um, their bodily changes and hormonal, a hormonal cascade. And they go into this kind of highly sexed uh, state. Um, so they're, oh, they, there's, 
there's only interest in sex during the periods of Kemmer. Right. And um, they they also the state also um, um, one of the one of the states on Gethin, one of the countries on Gethin, is this extremely repressive Stalinist old style communist regime, and they administer anti Kemmer drugs um, right. to prisoners and and um, and to certain state workers and laborers. And these have terrible effects, but they keep everybody docile. Right. So I I was I was thinking of that throughout the the book. How wonderful it would be to have Kemmer and Sommer drugs <laughs> that obviously weren't administered by the state, because I I would be absolutely against any form of coercion. But that you could take to switch your libido on and off at will. Right. We do talk about the need to avoid any kind of coerced. Uh, administration of these drugs. So in particular, we talk about when, when you mentioned conversion therapy, any kind of attempt to uh, interfere with the, the sexual development of, of young people, we think should be strictly forbidden. And, uh, you know, even in the case of voluntary usage of drugs, there are all sorts of interesting ethical questions that are raised. But we certainly focus on uh, cases where we think if these are to be ethically permissible, they would only be in cases where they're, they're truly voluntarily taken. Right. So talking about the pro-love drugs, so there is um, the use of MGMA, which might, which might lower certain boundaries and free you to feel um, more love for your partner in that moment, and then you might have a, an intense bonding experience, uh, which would remain with you as a precious memory. Um, so it would be slightly different from the kind of beer goggles effect, where. You get drunk and sleep with somebody, and the next morning you feel, "Oh my God, what the hell have I done?" That when the effects wear off, you you have this sense that you were simply duped or fooled. I think that is a slight potential danger with uh, love drugs. And I think you you cite a an article in the book about this, which is wonderfully titled "Beauty is in the Eye of the Beer Holder." Right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you're right that there is a risk of, we, we frame it in terms of questions about authenticity. So if you feel really loving towards someone that you've just met and it, it lasts only as long as the drug is, is in effect. And this, I mean, alcohol is a good example of this. This does happen with alcohol, which is also a, a disinhibitor. Uh, then, then there's a risk that the sorts of feelings that you were having really, really were down to the drug rather than to some sort of authentic connection between you and the person. And so what we advocate, especially with very powerful drugs like MDMA, is that they be used in the context of existing relationships where you've known the person for however many years and you have an established relationship both with them and with the therapist. And then you can decide whether being vulnerable to each other in a certain way is the sort of thing that's likely to allow you to maybe work through uh, difficulties that you have that themselves are inauthentic, such that the drug could be an authenticity enhancer. That's a possibility. But if it's used willy-nilly uh, in an environment that doesn't have that kind of care and and uh, guidance, then there is a risk that whatever you feel toward the person could be uh, something that's a facsimile of the real deal, but not not an authentic, lasting love. It's interesting, this kind of idea of authenticity in this context, that in a Sense there are, there's so often a conflict between uh, what we are feeling and what our higher order desires are. Uh, even when we're 
even when we're talking about something as subjective and immediate as a feeling of, of love, I think that we have all had this feeling of wishing that we could love somebody or be attracted to someone with whom we get on extremely well, who has a crush on us, but we can't reciprocate because that feeling is missing. Um, mm -hmm. And we also have, I certainly have been in the situation where I felt that in a long-term relationship also, that I feel that I, I don't feel that I love that person in the same way anymore, but I want to love them. Right. Um, it's rather extraordinary that kind, the way that we are able to um, compartmentalize those feelings. I mean, if we, if you don't love somebody, why is it that you want to love them? It's a little extraordinary. Right. Um, I think we have often a disjoint between our, our first order desires and our second order desires. Harry Frankfurt famously wrote about this in, in a paper about, uh, the concept of a person and freedom of the will, where he talks about first order and second order desires. So this comes up classically in the case of addiction. It might be that I have a first order desire to drink a lot of alcohol or take certain drugs, but I might have a second order desire not to have that desire. And you're talking about a, an inverse case where in the first order, you don't have the desire, but you have a second order desire to have the desire. And that is something that comes up in the case of loving relationships. Um, my my friend and colleague, Reese Southern, wrote an interesting essay that I think he posted up on Medium called Reorientation. And he starts with this anecdote of having a, a really close male friend that he feels sort of intellectually drawn to and attracted to, and they get along in all these wonderful ways, but he just doesn't feel any kind of sexual attraction to him. And he sees mm -hmm. that as a, as a disadvantage, as a loss. He says, you know, if I had sexual orientation reorienting drugs, I would take them to become bisexual because then I would be able to have more loving connections potentially with somebody who might be perfectly well suited to me, except for the fact that I don't feel attracted to them. And if that's the sort of thing that we could bring under our control, we might very well be able to bring our, our first order desires and our second order desires more into line, which on some views is, is a way of uh, uh, increasing uh, autonomy uh, rather than interfering with it, which is often the fear with these drugs. Well, imagine how, how wonderful it would be if every time you had a deep connection with somebody as a, uh, as a friend, that person could be your potential romantic and sexual partner, um, because you'd be able to, to somehow stimulate those, those sexual feelings towards them that you wouldn't but otherwise actually have. That could that could be a good idea, but you can also imagine the risk there, which is the, the paradox of choice, where people talk about all those studies, if you have a, a hundred flavors of jam in the supermarket, it's not that you feel happy that you have all the different options available to you, but rather it can become overwhelming. So you can imagine a certain amount of control could be disadvantageous because it would suddenly take uh, any kind of limitation or constraint imposed by the default or the environment away. And now you could conceivably have a, a, a romantic relationship with, with anyone and in some cases, that could be good. If it's your partner you've been married to for 20 years and you don't feel in love with them anymore, but you'd really like to, maybe that would be a good thing. But you can imagine some ways where this could backfire as well. Yes, there could be a grass is always greener syndrome. If you have too many opportunities, um, then you could become very capricious and fickle and not be able exactly. to Exactly. I mean, I think that's what's happening 
right now with online dating where a lot of people are downloading these uh, apps is in one way it's very liberating and people often find that instead of hanging out at bars or whatever it is that people do to to find a potential partner i've never tried that strategy so i don't know how it goes but it often feels like well you spend all this time getting to know someone and it turns out you're not compatible at all if only you could do a kind of a pre-screening where you get a little bit of knowledge about a, a range of people, and then you can pick the one that seems most suitable and go out on a date with them. And and so in some ways, that's a good thing. And I think many relationships now are starting uh, in this online app-driven way. But I think there is a sense of concern and something of a skepticism now that even among people who are otherwise uh, attracted to this idea are finding that there there's a sense that there is always someone else. You just swipe again, and maybe you can find another person to to go on a date with. And if that's true, it does change the choice set, and it changes the architecture of the choice before you, so that if things go a little bit not that well on a given date, you you throw in the towel when maybe had you persisted, you would have found a deeper connection or something like that with a person. So these these are serious trade-offs. And I think we're already seeing this with technology-mediated dating that's happening now. Yes, I, I agree. I mean, I think that there is relationships that have, have always been very fragile in the early stages, probably not in the very, very early stages in the first kind of flush of love, but um, in 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 the initial stages, it takes a while for relationships to become solidified, for you to feel right. like, well, we had an argument, but it's not the end of the world. We disagree on this, and I discovered this bad thing about them, but I have already built up a kind of bank of um, trust and affection and emotional investment, so I'm not going to um, leave immediately. And the dating apps make the, those early stages more, even more fragile, potentially, because you may be com competing against other people or even competing against just other potential people who are out there if you return to the app and swipe again. Right. It's, it's really hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. It really has changed a lot. I mean, when I was in my 20s, almost, I, I don't even remember if they existed then but i remember in the, with the early apps it was people who had met each other over an app were considered social losers and there was a really strong stigma attached to it right and two two friends of mine who were early users of um uh, match.com right and who got married after meeting each other on match.com and it wasn't until years later that they admitted to people that this was how they had met it was certainly um, stigmatized in early years that's true yeah very much so and now i feel as though 90% of the people who i've met who've got into serious relationships over the past decade um met their partners online at least 90% really almost almost everybody met online yeah, it's incredible um, how that's changed in such a short amount of time. Two young people who I met, they're not a couple, separately two Zoomers, told me that they actually thought it was bad form to approach people and, and ask them out in real life because it could be easily seen as harassment, it could come across as too forward. But right. when you're on an app, you know that the person is open to being asked out and therefore it's okay and so they actually felt that you should only use apps to date, which is a complete reversal. There's an interesting insight there. I think it's true that many people, and probably predominantly women, have had the experience of being approached at 
bars or other places where they're really just trying to have a drink or be with their friends. And all of a sudden it's being turned into some kind of courting moment that they weren't signing up for. And uh, one potential advantage of these apps, as you say, is that it, it's an equalizing measure where uh, you're in a context where both people have already signaled that they're at least interested in something romantic. And then if you don't want to meet the person, you're, you're not, they're not right in front of you. You're not forced to make some comment or draw attention to the scene or feel uncomfortable or potentially threatened. And so in that respect, yeah, you could see this as a, a progressive technology. Yeah. And some of the apps also don't allow men to be the first ones to message. So I think right. for many of the apps, you have to first choose each other and then um, only women can can message in, in the heterosexual pairings. Um, right. Women have to message, send the initial message to men. You can't message a woman who hasn't messaged you first, right. um, which reverses the usual kind of idea that men should approach first and women should be receptive in, I think, a very useful way. Right. I mean, I, I think these technologies are creating an opportunity to, in a conscious and maybe conscientious way, engineer new dating norms. And that could also be done poorly. There's probably a lot of adverse side effects of this way of approaching relationships that haven't been properly studied. But, you know, dating and forming relationships is one of the core things that humans have been doing for millennia. And in just a very short period of time, that whole process is being revolutionized. I don't know if that's the right word. It's certainly being changed radically. And so I think it's something that should be seriously studied. I mean, there should be a glut of sociologists and uh, relationship theorists and others very carefully studying the uh, implications of this technologically mediated way of dating, because uh, like any new powerful technology, it could be used for good, but also for ill. And we probably don't have even the barest sense of, of how that's, um, that balance is currently playing out. Mm. I want to return. I want to return. Um, I'm staying with the idea of pro-love um, interventions for the moment. I want us to get on to anti-love drugs, which interests me more, frankly, um, slightly later. But one thing that I was, another thing that I was thinking of a lot when I was reading the book is ultimately we're talking about boosting certain brain chemicals in order to enhance or um, increase the potential for uh, feelings of, of love, attachment, attraction, sexual attraction. And I dance Argentine tango and we talk very frequently about tango as being kind of oxytocin overdose because mm -hmm. we dance in this very close embrace. So we right. hold each other in a very similar way to the way that you would hug somebody that you care about. Right. And we dance like that uh, for most of the time and to the extent that it's possible. That makes the dance technically much more difficult than most other couple dances because it's it's obviously difficult to find freedom of movement whilst you're actually hugging somebody straight on. So you have to really coordinate your movements very carefully. Mm -hmm. Everybody, um, but still, even though it would be easier to dance slightly further apart, people, almost everybody dances close together all or most of the time because that sensation is so delicious that kind of feeling of being hugged is so delicious and yeah. your face is very close to the other person's face it has a very it feels very romantic 
mm-hmm. um, and maybe your cheeks are touching. Um, and that, I, I think that that, it's both a very healthy and nourishing experience and life-enriching experience. It's wonderful to be hugged. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I think it can also, it also, at least for me, is a, is a kind of double-edged sword because you're, you're in the same body posture you're in when you're really hugging somebody out of love mm-hmm. rather than in order to dance with them. But you're not hugging them out of love. You're hugging them in order to dance. And it can sometimes feel like a kind of aspartame to the sugar of the real thing. Mm-hmm. That it just is, it's close enough to, to remind you. It's reminiscent of what a, a real love feeling would be. Um, but it's not actually real love. And I sometimes find that quite heartbreaking. So when mm. I'm f- if I'm feeling very depressed and I'm single, I don't want to go dancing, actually. Right. Right. I don't want to have that feeling for the same reason as for the same reason that I um, I do keto. I know you're a vegan, so your eating habits are the opposite of mine, which is <laughs> fine. Um, mm. But I do keto and I don't a lot of people on keto eat these artificially sweetened desserts and things mm-hmm. because you can't have any for any form of natural sugars on keto. And I prefer not to because I find that they are just sweet enough to be dissatisfying, to arouse this kind of um, gustatory nostalgia in me. Yeah, it's like kind of, I mean, dancing tango together is like playing Romeo and Juliet on stage, but with a with somebody you, I'm playing Juliet opposite, opposite someone who I find very attractive very often. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of exchanging these words of love with him, but it's just a play. We're just rehearsing a play. Well, it's interesting to try to draw the line. When you were talking about dancing, I immediately thought of, of theater. Um, I, I was an actor for some 10 or 15 years, and mm. there's a saying I know, among... that's why I, that's why I right? use that <laughs> parallel. Well, yeah, there's a saying among, among theater artists um, where they refer to something called a showmance, and uh, it's often something that, that occurs in this heightened emotional state that you're in where you're portraying a loving relationship with someone. And very often that can lead to the the fostering of something that may very well be a genuine experience of love. So it's not that it's uh, only fake and, and, and then, you know, when the show is over, everything returns to normal, although maybe that's the ideal. I think people try to put certain uh, guardrails in place so that every theatrical experience or every dance of the tango doesn't turn into a confused romantic relationship when maybe that's not exactly what you were wanting. And so we have all these rituals in place. I mean, with tango, you are, you are releasing drugs in your brain that are the same as the drugs that are released when you are in love. And so in a way you are kind of leaning your own neurochemistry in the direction of a, of a, of a loving attachment to this person. And I imagine there are many cases in the dance world where sometimes uh, through dance and, and, and by, holding someone close in this particular ritualized way, some romances probably have started in that way. So I don't think there is a a clean line between the sort of oxytocin release that happens in a ritualized setting and and that that occurs when you're self-consciously trying to to start a relationship with someone. Right. And I think that the, the line between taking a drug and doing the kinds of things that will encourage your body to produce more of of 
that neurochemical naturally? I'm, I'm not sure that there's any hard and fast line between those two things. A lot of it has to do with, with how you're thinking about it. I mean, there's a lot of work in the in the psychology of emotions, for example, which is that you have these internal states like arousal or positive or negative affect. And then whether you decide that what you're experiencing is fear as opposed to anger, let's say, often has to do with how you interpret the situation. And then one in the same internal emotional state will be categorized that way and then subsequently uh, the rest of your subjective experience will be interpreted in light of that framing, and I think something similar can happen here. If if you're in a, if you're playing Romeo and Juliet, and you start to feel these feelings that in another context, if you were on a date with someone, might make you think, "Oh my gosh, we're really starting to form a real attachment." When you remind yourself it's just a play, as you say, then you might be able to re recharacterize that inner emotional state, but it's possible that the inner emotional state is one in the same state. It's the same release of oxytocin. It's just that how you consciously frame it or engage with it or weave it into your narrative can then have an effect on the course it takes. Mm. I think that it's very, on the one hand, I have to say that the tango scene is the most tempestuous, what's the word? It's the most tempestuous um, love milieu that I've ever encountered. Mm, interesting. I think, um, I mean, I, I, it's it's an it's a complete cliche that um, no tango couple ever stays together long term, right? And they all seem to break up immediately after having their having a child. Also, like when the child is two or three, that's the point at which they they break up. And I also, in one sense, I've never met so many uh, sexually and romantically fucked up people, mm -hmm. but. I've also encountered many people for whom uh, tango has really saved their relationship. I think in a similar way to the ways that you are proposing that we use that we use drugs like ecstasy, because um, many people have told me that they they took up tango in their forties or fifties, married couples or in their sixties, and they went from being roommates to having this. Um, rejuvenation of their romantic and sexual lives through the through the having sharing the experience of dancing. Right. I mean, it's important to underline that we don't propose that people go out and use uh, ecstasy in this way, but rather that that this be researched, especially since MDMA is now being used as a an adjunct to psychotherapy for post traumatic stress disorder and other things, because in in some cases, if used in the right way and in the right context with the right couple, it could have just the sort of effect that you describe. But just as in the tempestuous world of tango romance, where you have a lot of more haphazard situations or people who are forming connections that really are not a suitable match and then they end up breaking up as soon as the kid is born or whatever it is, it seems like either of those kinds of uh, general patterns of, of events could play out in the case of drug-assisted psychotherapy. And so the point would be to, to do a lot of research to figure out what are the kinds of situations where it's breathing life back into a, an authentic and meaningful connection versus what are the ones in which it's causing people who aren't really good match to to feel as though they are over the short term only to to have to face up to problems later on. And, and, and getting that distinction right will be very important going forward. Well, I was quite interested. One of the points where I disagreed with you in the book was um, you talk about the three conditions under which we should be administering or considering the use of these pro-love drugs. Mm -hmm. um, 
And those conditions were, first of all, that the person is a consenting adult who is doing this out of their, um, on their own free will, which I completely agree with. So I think informed consent is crucial. But the other two conditions I felt were unnecessary. The first one I think was that, and this might take us over into the anti, anti-love part. The first sure. one was that the feelings that they are having that they want to suppress should be both subjectively and objectively negative, bad feelings, i.e. feelings that are bad for both the individual and that we consider bad as a society. Well, just to be clear, what we consider bad as a society isn't the same thing as objectively bad. Those can come apart. There can be, you know... Oh, okay. Uh, Sorry. Mean, what did you mean right. by objectively bad then, in that case? Right. So... I, I, when I say we, I mean you and I, what we would consider bad, not necessarily what every society would consider bad. But for example, pedophilia, we would consider bad. Homosexuality, we would not consider bad. The reason why we put those those guardrails in place is not to say that there's never a situation where a person could just, because it's voluntary, decide that that's, that's when they want to use these drugs. We're trying to highlight what we call a best case scenario. So you might have somebody who feels, I mean, take homosexuality, you might have somebody who feels that uh, from their perspective, having same-sex desire is this uh, disadvantageous or, or disvaluable. And so they want to take this drug. Now, you can imagine all the counter arguments that would be raised here, which is that, well, there's nothing wrong with having same-sex desire. And the only reason that person might feel that way is because of internalizing prejudiced, bigoted social norms and so forth. And so we wrote a whole paper about this where we say it's not actually straightforward that adults should be categorically prohibited from intervening in their own sexual orientation, even if it's in response to unjust social pressures. But we do in the book make the point that the best, clearest, least controversial example will be ones where both from the perspective of the individual and from the perspective of society, there's a, a convergence of, of, of belief that the feelings of attraction or attachment or whatever it is are bad, either intrinsically or instrumentally likely to be harmful. So we don't rule out the possibility that adults should be able to intervene in their neurochemistry as long as they have access to the to the drug uh, according to their own values. And there is a there's a, a line of thinking that suggests that um, uh, people should be able to make those kinds of choices. But we were trying to, to identify what we thought was the best case scenario or the least controversial scenario, not the only permissible scenario. Right. Okay. Because I think the third, the third condition that you set in that best case scenario is that other methods would have been tried, right. um, would have been tried and failed or would have been judged to be uh, so onerous and so painful and damaging that it would be better to take the, the drugs. Um, right. Whereas definitely my stance would be, well, I believe all recreational drugs should be legalized. Mm -hmm. In any case, um, and I certainly think that if individuals were able to manipulate um, their romantic or sexual desires, they should be permitted to do so. I, I mean, I'm sympathetic to that view. I, I, I similarly have a, a general personal philosophy, which is that if, if we think people are generally of sound mind, it should be up to them to decide how to live their lives. And I'm very opposed to any kind of paternalism, generally speaking. I think that in the case of drugs that have a long history of being used within a certain social context where there are rituals and uh, institutional guidelines for how to use them in a responsible way, then I'm certainly supportive of people being able to just decide how to use drugs within that context. The problem with introducing drugs that what might be used in a new way or a way for which we don't have a social 
uh, agreement about the the better or worse ways of using them, it does seem like the risk of uh, misuse or dangerous use would be increased. So one way that you can get rituals and guidelines in place is through explicit social policy or laws. Um, but other ways you can just have traditional use. So alcohol, for example, we have certain ways in which we're used to using this powerful drug. And we have a- agreements as a society for what are the circumstances under which it's generally a, a, a positive thing and, and which are the ones where it's a negative thing. And still lots of people use it in a harmful way. But at least we have some kind of uh, you know coordination mechanism for how people should use this this powerful drug. When it comes to MDMA or uh, uh, psychedelic drugs, um, we just don't have a lot of practice as a society for using them, and they're very powerful drugs. And so my thought is um, not that the strong arm of the law is always the right way to try to put uh, protections in place, but that we should move carefully and slowly. I'm not sure that just instantaneous legalization of powerful drugs so that they're available at every street corner is a good idea because you do need to you do need to work up to that as a society so that, uh, you know, responsible adults are not just acting in a vacuum, but but have some sort of social support or sort some guidance in, in terms of how best to use the drug and, and how not to use it. Yeah. So maybe it should be under medical advisement. Maybe you should have to show that you at least talk to your doctor before going to purchase the drug. I, th- I think so. I mean, I again, I'm sympathetic to the view that People should be able to, uh, certainly if it's a drug that exists in nature like psilocybin, it seems a bit strange that the government has decided that adults are not allowed to ingest a mushroom that exists in the woods uh, if they if they know what they're doing and they, they do it advisedly. Um, at the same time, uh, because these, these drugs are as potent as they are, it seems really advisable to put structures in place whereby they would be used with with people who are qualified in administering them in such a way that they're likely to bring benefit over harm. Um, you know, people who have bad trips and have certain psychiatric conditions, th- that can be devastating for the rest of their lives. They can have these psychotic breaks and so forth. If you use MDMA too much, it has strongly neurotoxic effects on the brain that, that you may never recover from. And so it doesn't seem crazy to me that at least in terms of official policy, we should be making these drugs available if, if they continue to be researched in a context where the person who's giving you the drug is also you know a, a qualified therapist who can help you integrate the insights that you're gaining into your normal waking consciousness rather than Mm. handing out these pills like candy and hoping, you know, wishing everybody good luck. I think that that might um, be a good place to segue into the anti-love drugs. Sure. Um, So the the example, which we've already alluded to a little bit here, um, one, so you gave several examples for how anti-love drugs might be used or indeed even are already being used uh, in the book, in effect being used. And by anti-love drugs, you mean certain ways of using, for example, um, SSRIs, um, because mm-hmm. antidepressants often have a dampening effect on the libido. Right. And um, so one, one, I think, pretty non-controversial suggestion is that this, these kinds of treatments could be um, used for pedophiles who want people who have pedophile um, desires and who want to dampen down those desires. And I know that already um, a number of of convicted pedophiles and and other sex offenders have requested to be chemically castrated, which is just like a more extreme version of that. Well, there are some situations where as a condition of parole, convicted sex offenders, particularly if the 
form of sexual abuse they've engaged in is is concerning minors will will uh, be administered um, anti-androgen drugs, testosterone blockers, essentially, and mm. this is sometimes referred to as a chemical castration. So that's there is a practice already in some jurisdictions where that's that's commonly done. Um, right, and this also, of course, has a very um, sinister history. This this used to be a, a uh, this used to be a punishment for homosexuality, most famously with what's his name, <laughs> Alan Alan Turing. Yes, thank you. I'm getting yeah, old. Yeah. That's okay. Um, I need some anti-aging drugs. Is what I need. <laughs> right. I'm getting more bumbling and old with every month. It seems. Um, I mean, that's 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 why we put all those strict conditions in, precisely because of the historical misuse of anti-libido drugs or attempts to negatively intervene in people's sexual desires. They, they've they've they're ripe for abuse in terms of some group in power having a narrow-minded view of what's sexually appropriate and what's deviant, trying to stamp out the the perceived deviance. Now, in the case of pedophilia, almost everybody agrees that that uh, those sorts of desires uh, are unlikely to 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 ever be good if expressed. Uh, there's now there's exceptions to this. There are these sort of pro pedophilia groups that in the, in the early gay rights movement were trying to align themselves with the gay rights movement and say, you know, pedophilia is a kind of same sex love was their view. And they cite the Greeks and so forth, but that tends to be a pretty fringe view in society. And for the most part, mm. uh, people agree that, and, and there are a lot of people with, with pedophilia who, who, hate their desires and who wish they didn't have them. And they do say, as you, as you suggest, if I could just take a drug that would make it so that I, I didn't have these desires, I'd, I'd better trust myself not to cause harm to anyone. And, and also I'd be able to bring my biology into alignment with my higher values, the same sort of first order, second order desires thing we were talking about earlier. So that does seem like a case that's, if there is a drug that allows a person to, to, uh, quash pedophilic desires, I think almost everybody would think that that would be a, uh, a permissible use of the drug. So the slightly more troubling case on the other um, end of the scale is what you are calling um, high-tech uh, conversion therapies. Right. And the example you gave was at um, yeshivas where they are, um, at some yeshivas where they are administering or encouraging, it's not coerced, I think, but they are encouraging yeshiva students to take SSRIs that will have a libido, to purposely take those that will have a libido dampening effect um, right. if they are gay, so that they are not feeling same-sex desires. Well, or any sexual desires. I mean, the, mm, these are also yeah, administered in the yes. case of a, a desire to masturbate, which uh, is also looked down upon in these very fundamentalist uh, orthodox Jewish communities. Um, so that's actually low-tech conversion therapy. When when we talk about high-tech conversion therapy, we're, this doesn't exist. But we're we're asking what would happen if there were technologies that could do what you talked about earlier, namely entirely reorient someone's desires from same sex to opposite sex as a as a shortcut, uh, or opposite sex to same sex. Uh, and the reason why we we ask about this potential technology is because a lot of the movement for gay rights currently is premised on the view that sexual orientation is immutable. Uh, and, and, and even that is often drawn as an implication of the view that it's innate. So a classic argument is, I was born this way, I can't help my sexual desires, uh, and I, I can't change them even if, I, even if I wasn't born this way. So either way, you shouldn't be able to discriminate against me on the basis of my sexual desires. And our view is that this is a, a, a short-sighted argument, because suppose some technology, what we call high-tech conversion therapy, is indeed invented that 
enables you to change your sexual orientation. Well, now you've basically sacrificed your entire cause because you've been empirically refuted. Where now, if that was the reason why people shouldn't be able to discriminate against you, you, you can't claim that anymore. So we think there should be stronger arguments uh, in support of, of gay rights and for other sexual orientation minorities, which is it shouldn't have anything to do with whether you can change your sexual orientation or not in the same way that people have protection for religious belief, um, even though you can change your religious beliefs, you know, that's not something that, that's immutable or or even innate in, in a straightforward way. Um, so that's that's a that's a theoretical construct, high tech conversion therapy. But the low tech mm-hmm. conversion therapy that you're referring to, you're right, has a global dampening effect on libido, and it's using commonly used drugs, uh, serotonin enhancers that have this known side effect, and it's it's really invidious the way insidious, invidious. I'm not sure which one I want to say. It's insidious, I think, uh, the way that it's being is used. It <laughs> maybe insidiously it's, maybe it's, invidious. <laughs> I, I think so, Invidiously yeah. insidious. <laughs> the, the, the way that they're being used, I mean, there's a profile in Haaretz newspaper called Rabbi's Little Helper, and the little helper is, is these antidepressant drugs. And, and the way it plays out is that these, these yeshiva students come to their uh, psychiatrists and or their marriage counselors and at the advice of their rabbis, and they say, um, you know, I have I have these same sex desires, and that's that's not allowed in our community. And as a matter of fact, they feel depressed. They 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 genuinely are suffering from depression because of this mismatch between their naturally occurring desires and the restrictive norms of their community. And so you might think, well, as long as they're depressed, what could be wrong with prescribing this medication, which happens to have the side effect of also depressing their libido, which therefore makes it easier for them to conform to the norms of their community. And you can see that this creates a problem because it might well be the case that that in the here and now, the individual person who's suffering both from depression and from a locally forbidden kind of desire can seem to kill two birds with one stone and take care of both of those problems. And now maybe they can fit into their society and they're not feeling so depressed. But over the long run, of course, this just reinforces the oppressive norm. And it makes it so that in future generations, anybody with same-sex desires or an urge to masturbate or whatever is considered deviant in the community uh, will just have some technology thrown at them to, quote-unquote, take care of the problem rather than uh, liberalizing the norms, uh, you know, encouraging a movement within the the community to, to recognize that same-sex desires shouldn't be treated as, as pathological. And it's very tough when you're dealing with a religious community because once you, once you think that you have a divine anchor point for your argument, uh, that becomes a sort of immovable premise. And uh, anybody who says you should reconsider the, the thought that actually same-sex desires are, are pathological, if you're dealing with a religious fundamentalist, no such argument can succeed. And so it's an extremely difficult situation. My view is that the, the norm should liberalize, and it shouldn't be the case that there are communities that uh, argue that same-sex desires are pathological. But I don't know how to convince someone out of that view uh, who who literally believes in, in uh, certain views from scripture. Yeah, I mean, I feel that if so, if high tech conversion therapies existed, um, I I think that uh, if I don't see how I could have the right to say to somebody who is to a man who is gay, whether he's religious or not, and for whatever reasons, whatever the reasons are that he is uh, unhappy with his sexuality, that he cannot change his sexuality if we have the technological means to allow him to do so um, because I'm not in his in his situation I would prefer a society where um, he wouldn't feel the need to do that because homosexuality would be more accepted and right. I can see how many people uh, 
converting from homosexuality to heterosexuality would make things harder and harder for the homosexuals who are left behind. Right. It would be like, um, what's your excuse? Why aren't you joining the winning team? You know, we have this technology available. What's wrong with you? Yeah, you can imagine also those sorts which, of arguments. would shrink your pool of potential partners That's just true on too. a numerical level. Yeah. So there are, I think it's called in, in philosophy, a collective action problem. There's a collect kind of collective action problem there. Is that, exactly is that right. the right term? Okay. And but I, but I feel as though groups and societies don't have rights. It's individuals who have rights. And if some individual is suffering and there is a way to alleviate their suffering, then I, I can't see why I, sh I or anybody else should be permitted to make that decision for them. It's, it's Given a difficult, that it's not, right. it's not inherently harmful to be heterosexual. So, Right. Uh, well, nor is it inherently harmful to be uh, homosexual. Of course. I, I, of course. I think there's a very, very rough analogy, which we raise in the book with the collective action problem posed by narrow aesthetic standards and the cosmetic surgery industry. So a similar kind of mm -hmm. thing applies here. An individual person who, let's, for example, wants to get a breast augmentation, it's really unjust that anyone should live in a society where undergoing this extremely invasive, quite risky thing is what they feel is the price of the ticket for being perceived as sufficiently attractive in their society. And so you might think that, well, we should just ban cosmetic surgery. That'll take care of the problem. And somebody making your kind of argument would say, listen, you know, we might think it's unfortunate that we live in a society where there are these restrictive uh, aesthetic norms that feel make many uh, women feel pressured to undergo quite, quite risky and dangerous surgeries in order to gain acceptance in the society. Nevertheless, if the technology is available and an individual woman decides that all things considered, that's what would be in her best interest, who am I to tell her she shouldn't do it? I, I, I see that, uh, for the case of, of cosmetic surgery. And I've argued, uh, in, in the past that the view of uh, the feminist philosopher Margaret Olivia Little is right here, which is it is paternalistic to tell women that they can't do X, Y, and Z with their body if the technology exists. And so it might well be that an individual cosmetic surgeon should honor the request of, of a, a, a client who comes and says, this is what I want to have done as long as she really is uh, voluntarily raising the the prospect of surgery, but that the surgeon also has an obligation not to profit from unjust norms, which that's not going to happen. I mean, cosmetic surgeons actively play on people's bodily insecurities to drum up business. So mm. the problem the problem isn't necessarily any individual instance of, of performing the surgery, but it is the perpetuation of the whole system whereby you're going to have a constant stream of clients coming in feeling like they hate their bodies because they've been taught to hate their bodies by society. And it seems like you do have to try to deal with that structural issue, perhaps even as uh, on an individual by individual basis, the surgery is made available. There's a, I mean, there's a, an, a more uh, controversial, obvious parallel here. And I don't want to get into the weeds on this topic because uh, uh, I, the next episode I'm about to release is my interview with Colin Wright. Um, mm -hmm. And we're going to be talking about trans issues in that, in that issue. Um, I, you're, ta you're talking about race. Episode. And, uh, no, tra uh, trans, uh, transgender. Oh, Colin issues. Wright. I'm, I'm thinking of somebody, somebody else. And the reason why I thought of it is that the parallel with homosexuality for me would have been if there was some sort of uh, race change operation somebody could undergo. Mm. And the reason mm. why I was going to bring this up is that there it seems more obvious that helping individual people in a subjugated minority change their physiology so that they can pass as a, as a member of the majority race group. Um, that, that seems like the sort of thing where you just 
don't want that technology to be available. The thought is obviously the problem here is the racism, not your phenotype. And and so even though it might be true that some individual person in a in a you know actually this happens with a so-called Asian eyelid surgery. This is an example where mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. are discriminated against uh, in a in a race-based way because of their phenotype. And some parents do authorize this surgery to try to quote unquote fix their child's eyes to make them appear more Caucasian so that they won't be teased. And because of the the racial element to this, uh, it's it it seems to me that I my intuitions weigh so much more heavily in favor of dealing with the structural issue rather than making the technology available to to quote unquote fix individual people. And it is a trade off. It is a collective action problem, as you suggest. Every time you surgically re-engineer somebody's body to fit a problematic norm, you reinforce the norm and you strengthen the norm. And so you might have to make a choice where as a society you say, if this norm is sufficiently unjust, we actually are are going to draw a line in the sand and say we mustn't take actions which reinforce the norm, even if some some people in the here and now will will struggle. Of course, that depends on whether you think the norm is beneficial or harmful. And I I know that you won't agree with this line of argument, and I don't agree with it either, let me just be clear. Um, It's just that I see a parallel between what you're saying and what anti-trans activists, trans, I don't know what to call them, um, are saying about, uh, for example, gender reassignment surgery. Um, sex, Mm -hmm. gender reassignment surgery, um, that what you are doing there is doing extremely invasive major surgeries and hormonal treatments on people um, and perhaps profiting of that also. Um, And uh, if you are the surgeon or you are the person administering the hormones, you also have a vested interest in persuading. And very often these treatments begin before the age of consent. And there are a number of people who have detransitioned now, who feel that they were coerced, persuaded, misled uh, into hormonal treatments, puberty blockers, or even sex reassignment surgeries, or mastectomies, or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, because that was the kind of easy treatment to give them. And uh, we as a society shouldn't be encouraging that. And I tend to take the opposite uh, view. Um, with children, it's more of a gray area, but certainly with consenting adults should be allowed to do what they wish with their bodies, with well, informed there's, there's consent. What... Yeah, yeah there's, an, there's an important distinction here, which is that insofar as this is, is analogous to the other cases, the thought is that there's some sort of unjust social norm that's causing people to want to change their bodies. And in some cases, that may be true. And in the book, we talk about the fact that gender is uh, uh, oppressively narrow and too heavily policed and that the norms should be relaxed. And, you know, uh, men who have feminine coded dispositions or desires shouldn't be stigmatized because of that and and the other way around. So we, we do agree with that. But some people who who ask for gender reassignment surgeries are in a subgroup of people who identify as, as transgender. And it's not that the the uh, discomfort they have with their sex-typed bodily features is entirely down to unjust social pressures, although often there's a mix of these things. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's, it's down to I mean, there's different pathways to, to experiencing what's called gender dysphoria. But sometimes there's something that's pretty deep within the person. We don't have a very good theory of what exactly is going on. But it seems like irrespective of the social context, some people would have an aggressive discomfort with 
breasts, for example, or having a penis or whatever it might be. And it might well be for some of those people that changing their body rather than trying to change their mind is all things considered what would be most conducive to their flourishing. And that's setting aside questions of social norms. Yeah, but I think that they should be permitted to decide that. So my position would be, even if they don't have dysphoria, but they just like the idea of changing, changing the body, they should be enabled to do that. If they feel that's what would make them happier, for whatever reason, it doesn't need to be a medical. Maybe this can segue into the next thing, which is about the medicalization of love. Because I feel it. We are asking, okay, you want to have sex reassignment surgery. Let's assume you're a fully consenting, informed adult. Um, Because with with underage people, there are all kinds of other issues and it becomes much more complicated and it's much harder to know should we err on the side of, we should probably err on the side of caution, I would suggest with the underage. But with adults, I feel that if you just, you don't have, why should you have to prove you have gender dysphoria? If you feel that, if you, Brian, feel that you would be happier having a female body and you want to have that, um, make make that surgically possible, um, why should that require some kind of diagnosis? Um, if that's your choice, you should be able to do it. I would, I would say. We, yeah, we use that exact example in the book where we we're trying to to ward off concerns about pathologization, which is that in the current model, if you want to have access to some kind of medical technology, the way we do it now is you say, well, you have to have some sort of disease that's being treated, and then we can code it for insurance purposes or something like that. Whereas my colleagues and I defend a welfareist account of what we call enhancement, where we just say, if access to a technology employed in a certain way is reasonably judged to all things considered improve a person's life, we shouldn't be so fussed about deciding whether the reason why their life isn't flourishing is because they have a disease versus whether they just have some other thing going on such that the change would improve their welfare. And so you don't necessarily have to, and this is happening in the transgender community right now. A, A lot of people are saying we'd like access to these medical technologies, but we don't want to be pathologized. We don't want you to have to diagnose my identity, they might say, as some sort of a mental disorder. And so there are now interesting movement within the medical community to accommodate this, this desire, which is to say, um, we'll, we'll, we'll write down a, 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 a ascription of, of gender dysphoria, but gender dysphoria is now being defined in such a way that it's not pathologizing. It just refers to the distress the person feels about the current alignment between their bodily features and their mental features within the context of a given society without suggesting or implying that that distress is evidence of a mental disorder. And I think that generally speaking, that's the way things should go. It's that if a technology can genuinely improve a person's life, we don't need to first uh, generate some sort of uh, um, pathology that we can slap on them like a label uh, in order to justify making the technology available. Um, right. Although maybe distress is a, could be seen as a pathology. I mean, I think that this, at one point in the book, you you ask, is love sickness just a metaphor or is it a disease? And mm-hmm. I just don't think there's any hard um, division division between those two things. Oh, I agree. I, I mean, we'd have to define what we mean by a disease. This, there's a whole literature and philosophy about what exactly is a disease. Sometimes people treat it as just something that's uh, statistically uncommon and disadvantageous. And, and then they say, well, that's what it is for it to be a disease. Other people think there needs to be some sort of uh, organic breakdown in a somatic process, and then, then it counts as a disease. But I mean, that's a whole, that's an hour long podcast right there. It's just how do we conceive of disease in, in the philosophy of medicine? Right. So one thing you talked about is 
um, using the anti-love drugs to help people to leave dysfunctional relationships, in particular abusive relationships. So, right. um, for example, a woman who is in a relationship with someone with a man who is violently abusive. I'm mm -hmm. just using this as an example. It, it needn't be in this exact constellation. But this is the example you give in the book. It's a specific person who wrote to you and whose story you describe anonymizing it right. in the book. Um, and that person wants to leave, but also um, finds that they cannot, that they feel so strongly in love with that, with uh, the abuser. So mm -hmm. supposing that they have the they have the physical power to leave, so they won't be they're not afraid that he will hunt them down. Um, mm -hmm. They have some financial independence, they have some social support, etc. So we're assuming that, that that their reason for not leaving is not that they cannot leave without risking everything, right? But that they um, on a lower this is the lower order versus higher order desire on their lower order desire they still love that person and want to be with them. But mm -hmm. on a higher order of desire, they want to leave this person who is abusive to them. Right. It's very much like an addiction in that case, where people mm -hmm. feel drawn to yeah. the drug or yeah. whatever it is, but they know it's bad for them. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so it's not, uh, in both cases, it's not about the relationship per se, or it needn't be about the relationship per se, because somebody could, for example, voluntarily be a sub in some um, violent, quote unquote, BDSM relationship. And uh, we would surely see that differently because then there's a um, match between their higher order and their lower order desires. Um, mm -hmm. But in this case of abuse, which is completely different, um, that's that's where we could use drugs to dampen down the dampen down that that kind of attachment or that sexual addiction to the person which would enable them to leave enable the victim to break free yeah this is where it might be useful to point out that underlying all of the arguments in the book is some conception of love and attachment as being situated within a biopsychosocial constellation of traits and experiences. So in, in this case, there seems to be a, a, a mismatch between a lower order desire. So there's this sense of attraction that's driving you towards someone that you know in your in your higher order beliefs is not good for you to be attracted to. And so you might think, well, you could take a drug to, you know, get the lower order desires to align with the higher order desires. But there's also a social element to this. And uh, especially in the context of abuse, where as if somebody's beating you up, that's a crime. And so there are all sorts of social levers that should be pulled in these kinds right. of cases. Also, yes, of course. Right. So, so thinking about, you know, it's not just uh, you've got psych psychology and biology and can it, can a drug, you know, get those to be in alignment. It's you've got biology, psychology and the social context. And very often it's, it's a change to the social context that would be the most appropriate intervention in, in, in a case like this. So we, we go to, to great lengths to, to clarify that we aren't saying it's the responsibility of a person in an abusive relationship to drug themselves into unfeeling, and then the, the abuser can just uh, carry on. Rather, the, the abuser has the moral obligation to stop what they're doing, and they may also be criminally liable if they're, if they're beating up their partner. We're saying that, that if 
the social and legal context has been appropriately addressed and a person feels that that it's in their own best interest to dampen down their their irresistible feeling of being drawn towards someone who who abuses them that again perhaps they should have the right to do that in concert with these these other social and and institutional interventions well i think that there might be a slight confusion in some people's minds. I'm sure not in your mind, Brian, but I just want well, to... Don't be, don't be so sure. We'll find out. I've got all sorts <laughs> of confusions up here. I'm sure you have. <laughs> um, but there, there might be some confusion between empowering somebody and um, making something their responsibility. And I think right. we yeah. see this all the time, for example, in rape and sexual abuse prevention. And it can be very difficult to know where that line should be drawn. Right. But whenever I hear people saying, instead of telling women how to um, be less likely to be raped, we shouldn't tell men not to rape. Well, that's all very right. well. But I don't want my my personal safety to be dependent on what some guy who is some guy who is potentially a rapist is willing to do or not do and change or not change about his behavior. I think this tracks this this tracks the same collective action problem we were talking about before, mm. where I think what people fear is that if we spend too much of our airtime instructing women or other vulnerable people about how to avoid getting raped, that what this will do is take attention away from the structural change that's necessary, which is we don't want to live in a society where there are ever situations where somebody would, uh, you know, engage with someone non-consensually or attack them or whatever it might be. And, and the challenge in these kinds of collective action problems is, can you have your cake and eat it too? Can you simultaneously try to change the culture and make sure that uh, perpetrators are uh, um, you know, properly punished and so forth, while at the same time equipping people in the here and now, in the non-ideal world that we live in, with whatever tools will help them best navigate this space and and uh, get through it unscathed. And I think the fear people have is that it's 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 a hydraulic system where if you equip someone, or as you might say, empower them to uh, uh, protect themselves, that that will come at the direct cost of making the the requisite social changes, and and that's that's what people don't want to have happen. But I think that in any situation like this, there's going to be some complex combination of attempts to change the social norms at the same time as allowing people to take whatever measures they can to to increase their well-being at the individual level. Um, and and sometimes sometimes uh, you have to work on both both angles at the same at the same time. Well, I think you always have to work on both angles at the same time. And you also have to, yeah. even when the information is out there, you have to realize that it is not human to exercise constant vigilance. Um, right. So even if, if you come to visit Buenos Aires and we, the Argentines, oh, no, I won't, I won't make racist generalizations about the Argentines. I'm just going to say there are a lot of pickpockets in the city. Mm -hmm. um, I think less than in some other cities and more than in some. So it's nothing specific to us. But if nevertheless, I have told you this, and I tell you, don't, for example, leave your iPhone on the table when, uh, when you go up to collect your drinks at Starbucks or something, because people right. will run by and snatch it. Mm. Nevertheless, if you, if you, if having heard that from me, you still leave your phone on the table and grab the drinks. I'm not going to blame you if your phone is taken. Right. It doesn't, fo it doesn't follow that, that someone is to blame for any 
uh, negative thing that befalls them because they didn't take the appropriate precautions. I think that's the, that's where people are afraid of the blaming the victim kind of entailment. And the thing is, it just doesn't follow. You might very well say, you know, park your car in the garage instead of out on the street because, you know, there's car thieves in the area. And then if your car gets stolen, it's not that you are to blame. Obviously, the person who stole the car is to blame. But but it, it's also potentially prudent for you to heed the advice of the person who understands something about the local context. And you can you can acknowledge that without blaming blaming the victim. Right. I want to return to love. And, yeah. Um, what, what are we talking about? What are we? <laughs> what's the topic of this podcast? I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm chatting to you way too much. Um, so how do you see um, how do you see the future of this developing? The future of the love drugs and anti love drugs. Yeah, I th- I think the most plausible next step is that the the use of MDMA and psilocybin for magic mushrooms, which are very quickly moving into the mainstream of medicine as treatments for serious psychiatric disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder and incurable depression and so forth. Those likely will be available as adjuncts to psychotherapy for individual level mental health purposes. And there's now some parallel work being done to include partners of people who have these diagnoses. So if you have PTSD, then your partner may be able to come in and and be part of an MDMA-enhanced therapy session. There are some trials looking at that right now. So that's a step in this more relational direction. And what we call for in the book is one step further, where we say we should be researching the use of MDMA or psilocybin-enhanced couples counseling, where neither partner necessarily has some sort of diagnosable mental disorder, but could nevertheless benefit from the therapy in the same way that couples who go to marriage counseling today, they aren't admitting that they have some sort of relationship disorder. They're just trying to improve their relationship. And if, mm. if, uh, if a drug-enhanced psychotherapy session could increase the good effect of current methods that are, that are used, then we think that we should, we should at least be researching that possibility, given that these drugs are coming back into use anyway. So that's, that seems like the likeliest scenario in the foreseeable future, at least as far as we can tell. Thank you so much. I still really want to have anti-love drugs. I'm going to end on this briefly personal note, because I have very intense, um, I'm very prone to intense crushes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a, a an ongoing argument with my psychiatrist as to whether this is pathological or not. Right. So he says it's a it's a um, inescapable part of my personality, um, mm. and uh, he doesn't see anything negative in it per se. But I feel it's a cause of personal suffering, and it's an absolute right. pain in the neck, and it makes me feel like why have I not grown from being twelve years old? Well, we talk about unre- unrequited love as one of the cases where anti-love drugs might be appropriate. Is if if you're really leading into a, a place of despair, such that the pain and the suffering and the response to the unrequited love isn't developing your your character or whatever might be the positive effect, and you really are just suffering, we think that relieving suffering, if it's possible, is the sort of thing that you you should be able to make a decision about. Right. I think that I would just have a much calmer life and have more yeah. mental energy for other things. If I weren't so, so, if I didn't have such a vivid imagination in this regard, and I didn't find it so, so easy to fall in love with people. Yeah, Um, yeah. Even though I'm not burning any bunny rabbits or acting out in any way, everything is only taking place in my own imagination. Right. Um, And I try to disguise it by flirting really extremely with everybody um, (laughs) on uh, on the kind of proviso that the best place to hide a corpse is in a graveyard. Right, Um, right. But I think that both 
uh, both pro and anti-love drugs could potentially help us to have more control over these kinds of feelings and use them in ways that are that are beneficial to us, that enrich the relationships we want to have enriched and leave us kind of calmer in the situations in which we want to have that that type of calm. Do you feel that's a reasonable? <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I have, I have all sorts of thoughts. Maybe we have to have a part two of this podcast because there are so many interesting uh, points that are raised by what you've just said. Well, we will continue this sometime, maybe in, in private or in person. But thank you so much for joining me, Brian. And I will put the references to your book and other work in the show notes. And um, have a wonderful week, everyone. Thanks. Great talking with you. Bye. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.